Mutiny Radio. I'm your host, Autumn McGar. Hope you're staying nice and cool, especially if you're like me and you live in California. Uh, today, we are chatting with Nareed Saeed. She is the creative director of New Interiors. Great to have you with us today. Thanks, Autumn. Happy to be here. Great. So, you know, just to get us started, tell me about you as a designer, just kind of a bit about how you came to the industry and, you know, what what sort of led you here? Sure. Um, so I am the owner and creative director of New Interiors, the bi-coastal interior design firm specializing in kitchen and bathroom renovation in California and New Jersey. Mm-hmm. My journey to the interior design and kitchen bath industry was not necessarily a linear one. I always was very art and creative focused in school. Um, And when it was time to apply to college, I asked my father to let me apply to an art school in Philadelphia to style, uh, to study interior design. And he said it was a hobby and not a real job. (laughs) So I should focus on something more practical, like becoming a doctor. Um, So I ended up as a result of it taking a windy road through the college process uh, and eventually through that road landing at the Philadelphia College of Textiles and Science, which is now part of Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. Um, And I ended up graduating with a major in fashion merchandising, which put me in the school of business. So I took a lot of business classes like marketing, economics, statistics, operations management, but I also had the uh, creative part of it, which was I ended up taking classes about color and design principles, textile designs, and other related things. And from there, I ended up spending 15 years in the fashion industry. I worked in buying, merchandising, product development, licensing, brand management. My last uh, full-time role, I was the vice president of global licensing for Greg Norman, who's a golfer, if anybody knows who he is. And at that time, I was... um, going through the process and realized I was pregnant with my third child Mm -hmm. and my husband and I were like, well, our 200 square foot condo in Brooklyn is probably not going to fit all of us because I also had six month old twins at home. (laughs) And we were like, we could put the baby in the bathtub, but that's weird. So, (laughs) you know, we were like, well, maybe not. So we, we started the process like anybody else of looking for a larger space. And, you know, in the end ended up, moving out to New Jersey where I pretty much grew up mm-hmm. and we ended up buying a house that I had dubbed the crazy cat house because it had 15, 15 feral cats living in it oh, at God. one point and it smelled like it had 15 feral cats living in it at one point. That's and distinctive. Um, <laughs> it's distinctive. It was distinctive, but it was this incredible mid-century, truly mid-century modern house in New Jersey that looked like it belonged in California, but was in New Jersey. And oh, so wow. we ended up, buying it and going down the process of renovating the home before moving in. And I worked with an architect to drop some of the plans and I worked with a contractor and told them I want to be in the house three months in three months because my baby is born, you know, mm-hmm. on this date. And they, they kind of laughed at me and said, Haha, it won't be us. It'll be you. You're, <laughs> you're going to be the reason it won't stay on track. And, I was like, what are you talking about? And they're like, oh, the homeowners never make decisions on time. They always delay everything. And I was like, okay, well, we'll see. I was like, I doubt that very much. It'll be me. So we'll see. Um, So in the end, I ended up keeping us on target and on budget. And 
you know, walked in the day of moving and they're still doing things. And they looked at me like, what are you doing here? I was like, I told you I'm moving in today. <laughs> and, you know, so they, they really didn't believe me. You thought I was kidding. I <laughs> yeah, I was like, you guys thought I was kidding. I'm not a woman who kids about this stuff. <laughs> so, um, you know, they basically were like, okay, you're no joke. Um, the design they felt was beautiful and really unlike other things they had seen before in New Jersey. And then you know, my project management skills, they were kind of like, you should do this for a living. This should be your job. Um, which, if you start at the beginning, was what I always wanted to do in the first place. Right. So I, it really, you know, it gave me the motivation to start my own firm. And um, with, you know, the support of the architect and the contractor kind of saying, yeah, you should do this. And um, my husband, you know, I said to him, give me two or three years. If it doesn't turn into anything real, I'll go, I'll quit and I'll go back to fashion. But right. um, it did click and it's been nine and a half years. So kind of a yeah, circuitous route my, to come back to where you started. <laughs> right. It, it took me a while, but I got back, um, you know, I'm, I'm like a, a Robert Frost poem. There you I took go. the road last taken. <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out it brought you right back there anyway. So <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Now, you know, nine years in, you endeavor to kind of create uh, socially and, and, and like emotionally thoughtful designs. I'm, I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that and kind of how that translates to your design process and, and your client relationships. Yeah. So for me, socially and emotionally thoughtful design in its most simplistic form is thinking of the whole versus the individual part. Yeah. So how will each decision impact each person along the chain, including the homeowner, but not just the homeowner. Yeah. Um, so, you know, look, the increasing awareness of inequities in our society combined with our increased knowledge of our collective responsibility to how we practice the art of building and construction in relation to the earth and our impacts to the earth. And all of that has brought me to this practice of ensuring that my designs are not simply an execution of a plan at any cost. Yeah. Um, but are thought through from start to finish. So I question every detail of, do we really need to take down that wall, move that kitchen appliance or bath fixture? Do mm -hmm. I really need to gut the entire space? Can I refinish or reuse something versus buying it all new? Where does the waste go? Yeah. And by doing this, I'm asking and really assessing the full exposure of the resources and the impact. Yeah. Most of my clients absolutely love this approach and truly appreciate that I'm thinking outside of the traditional construction box so that right. their impact is also being thought of because it's not just the impact I'm making. It's the impact that we as a group are making together. Right. It's more of a holistically thoughtful process than, you know, oh, I'm green because I use low VOC paint or anything like that. Absolutely. And, and through the, and honestly, through the process, a lot of times what I go through with my, and my clients are usually incredibly budget conscious. Sure. So this process, a lot of times people think means that um, it will be more cost more because there's more thought in it or cost more because the contractor has to be a little more careful, yeah. but with the right partners, I have found that I can be far more efficient with my clients' dollars. And I think it just requires 
a little bit of planning on the upfront process. Right. Now, you know, you've already mentioned that you work out of both New Jersey and Northern California, um, which is, you know, quite a lot of ground to cover. So I'm wondering, you know, what differences and similarities have you seen between design tastes on the opposite coasts and kind of what your clients are like? Yeah. So um, I think I held and I continue to hold a unique design point of view in New Jersey in that I am more drawn to mid-century modern and modern design. But I love the idea of mixing old and new elements, honoring the space as it was built historically, and then flipping some of the formula to create something a little unexpected and interesting. Sure. So for me, I would say my style translates to both coasts quite easily with, for sure, more people in California identifying with my point of view. So the move actually increased my opportunity, um, whereas my business in New Jersey was definitely more niche. Uh, but definitely my, you know, I would say New Jersey clients are a little bit more traditional. Mm. Um, you know, there's so much history. America, like that's where America started, right? And so, um, you know, that's where George Washington crossed the Delaware, right? It's right. New Jersey. <laughs> so, so you know, it all it all starts for us there in a lot of ways as America um, in that form. So, uh, you know, I think I definitely see my clients wanting to hold on to more of the traditional roots of architecture and design um, versus in California, I think people are willing to think a little bit more outside the box, which, you know, I love because that's what I love to do. So it's kind of like you can bring a little bit of the West Coast to the East Coast. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for sure, you know, that's always been my perspective. And, you know, you're also a great advocate for equity in design. And I'm wondering if you can talk about what that means for your business and kind of what practices you've had in place to sort of practice what you preach. Yeah. So as you, you know, Autumn, this is a big, this is my big passion point. And um, Mm -hmm. I am a firm believer that the practice of equity is the ultimate creator of more equity. So what that means is that in my daily practice, I'm the same way in my daily practice of the design. Am I being thoughtful? Am I thinking about where it's going and how it's going? It's the same thought process in the equity component of it. So who am I sourcing from? How am I sourcing from them? Are they socially conscious? Are they, you know, equitable in their processes? Have they treated my peers and my colleagues in the industry who are of different groups the same as they've treated people in the majority groups and so on and so forth. And I really, you know, if I know that a brand or a vendor is not living the principles that I want to associate my brand with, then I don't choose to use them. And that's really um, a big part of it for me. The other part of it is, um, you know, I, I am very vocal and visible about my perspective regarding housing inequality, the wealth gaps in our country, the bias that exists in yeah. the hiring processes, marketing, PR, all of those things. So my principles are part of me and therefore part of my brand and not for the sake of the business, but because I feel I have to really hold on to what's true and right for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as a result, I have a portfolio of clients and work that is I think far more diverse than many other designers in the industry. Right. And I think it's because many of my clients point to my writings or my talks and the things that I've done 
and they've told me that they choose me because of my stance or they choose me because they didn't see themselves otherwise represented. So my goal is 100% to serve a diverse group of people, not just racially or religiously or any other way that you can associate yourself, Mm -hmm. but also socioeconomically, meaning access to the building process. Right. And I got to imagine, you know, in your capacity too, as the leader of your local NKBA chapter, that definitely comes into play. Oh, absolutely. It it 100% is part of our work in the NKBA, Northern California chapter, um, Mm -hmm. you know, to, and to the degree that we can make an impact, we are absolutely doing things like trying to be more invested with our student groups um, in all of our colleges who span socioeconomic reaches and um, giving them the opportunities to participate in our programming and so on and so forth. Uh, We're doing it through our philanthropic work, which is, again, intended to reach to communities who are underserved Mm -hmm. and underprivileged. And um, we are also doing it in our daily practice of even in our recruiting process, which, you know, being a volunteer for the NKBA is, in fact, that is 100% volunteer, all the people on the council, as well as all the volunteers have other full-time jobs, right? And so, um, but through that recruiting process, reaching out to people who weren't otherwise included in the past and ensuring that they are brought into the fold and brought into the table and brought into the room and whether it's just simply to calling people and saying, come to the meeting, please come to the meeting. We want to see you there. Or, um, Hey, now that you've come to a few meetings, would you, would you be interested in participating even in a small capacity and making the opportunity accessible to everyone? Because again, volunteerism traditionally has been something that has been allocated for people who hold wealth Yeah. Uh, because you know, the rest, the rest of us have to work full time and, or have a certain amount of time we have to work on a nine to five schedule. And, you know, volunteering hasn't always been structured in a way that allows people who want to give to give. Uh, And I think one of the things that we do as a council really well is say to everyone, regardless of where you sit in that strata, this isn't a role for someone who just had time. This is a role for someone who wants to give and we will figure out how you do that in the parameters of what needs to be done. Absolutely. And I think that's really, really important in volunteerism. I love that, making that even just the act of giving more accessible. It really has been. I mean, people ask why there's certain people on boards uh, and why there are certain people in charity work and so on and so forth. And it is so much driven by ta- the, op- the wealth of time and the wealth of money to Mm -hmm. have access to both means you have the ability to do other things. Absolutely. Now here's a, an off the cuff question for you. What is inspiring you most right now in your work? Like what is the thing that is giving you the most creative juice? Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) Surprise question. (laughs) So most definitely I mean, I, I love tile, like tiles just, me too. that's my, that's my jam. It's like my art form that I want to work with. I just, I love tile in all of its forms. And I love thinking of ways to incorporate it into spaces that aren't 
kind of what we normally think about or where we normally think to put them or in the form we normally put them in um, and just to, you know, in, in, inspire people and encourage my clients to like really love their tile, not to choose something yeah. because it's going to sell, sell it in their house in 10 years. I mean, who's really going to know what's going to sell in their house in 10 years, it's right? It's a comparatively like, so, easy change anyway. <laughs> It is. Look, you know, it's not that expensive to reinvest in 10 years should yeah. someone else come in and say, oh, I don't like that tile. I'll change it. Um, but most definitely, that's that's the format that I take the most pleasure in for, for my art. It's one of my favorite things to go and look at, too. Listen, it's been absolutely fantastic having you today. Thanks so much, Autumn. I love chatting with you as always. <laughs> 